Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Alright, good evening everybody. It's Wednesday, December 16th, 2015. And we're here tonight with uh, Mr. Bob Schaefer. And I believe, Bob, you're going to be going over IRS defenses. Is that, did I get that right? Yes. Okay. Well, since I'm not feeling well, why don't you just take it away? I'll be happy to do that. All righty. Okay. Um, a lot of people, are, uh, more and more people are having problems with IRS. And you might think you don't have a problem, but they can make a problem. Uh, and then you, you're stuck with it. And so it's a good idea to um, get ready and be ready and be prepared. And what I'm telling you tonight is not legal advice. I'm not a lawyer. I'm going to tell you about 36 years of research has brought to my attention and how I've been successful and helped other people be successful in this area. Um, What I do is I set up government. I set them up uh, for their default, their failure. Uh, by using their laws against them. Now, with the IRS, they don't usually go into a regular court of record. They go into administrative law tribunal or one of their own tax tribunals, and there is no record. So the people that win there, you can't you can't use their argument. But sometimes those arguments leak out, and people write books on uh, how they. I have one. It was about 20 years ago that uh, I was going to go visit my daughter in another state and her family, and uh, it was around Christmas time, so I took a bunch of books with me because she she had to work, and I created an awesome document, if I say so myself. And uh, I have actually... Uh, distributed uh, uh, many of them uh, because of all the hours I put into it I asked for a $1,200 donation I don't don't do that anymore but I will tell you there's a way to get this information for a whole lot less and I will share that with you but to give you an idea uh, what I did I read all these books on um, you know I printed the IRS uh, how to beat the IRS, and uh, I beat the IRS, and I read all those. And I read all these wonderful stories of people's successes and, and, and questions that they brought forward that I thought, well, how in the world would they answer that? So I decided to write a series of letters as my setup, and it worked, by the way. It worked very well, thank you, uh, many years ago. Uh, and I share it with people from time to time, like I'm going to do tonight. Um, I decided to write a letter to, to write a series of letters to the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. 
In other words, I'm not going to talk to some guy in Utah or down by the beach or some guy over in town. I'm, I'm going right to the top. I found that going to the top is the best way to do stuff. And then you, you can justifiably rely on that information or lack of thereof. And that's what usually happens. So if you want to keep track of all your, <clears throat> all your work, now what I did, I created about 15 letters. And I thought rather than to send these 15 questions and have them answer half of them or 10%, I'll send them one letter a week. So I sat down on my old Radio Shack Model 4 computer, this is 20 years ago, and uh, created four, uh, excuse me, about 16 letters, each one asking a question to the commissioner. And it started out with... Uh, a large paragraph, then a space in the middle, and then two final paragraphs. And I'll read them to you. Uh, Dear Commissioner, and I, 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 that changes from time to time, so um, I'm not going to mention his name right now because it might be changed already. It changes a lot. Let me go on. Now, first of all, let me say this. For there to be a crime, you have to, they have to prove willfulness and wanton. In other words, evil criminal intent. I know that's a crime and I'm going to commit it anyway, and uh, I don't care. So you don't want to have anybody come after you criminally. And using my material, nobody's ever been, been criminally prosecuted for anything I've helped people with. In fact, I help people uh, get out of some of this stuff when they relied on other people's uh, false with that information. So intent is very critical. So we put this right up front. It is, I'm going to read now, it has always been my lawful intent to lawfully comply with all constitutionally valid laws, titles, manuals, codes, ordinances, rules, and regulations. A lot of people don't realize there's an IRS manual and there's an IRS code. Uh, <clears throat> rules and regulations that relate to me, my private land, and the work I do for a living. To always remain in honor, I have done a due diligent research study in the area of constitutionally valid taxation. During such research study, I have developed a number of good faith questions regarding such taxation by the Department of the Treasury and its Internal Revenue Service, and can think of no better source for written answers, I want written answers, see, than answers from you, the actual commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Therefore, my good faith statement and question to you is as follows. So that every, every, left a blank space so I can plug in all these, these questions that I had developed by reading all the uh, pile of books. It appears, here's the question, the statement and then the question. It appears that several IRS commissioners in the past have made the statement, quote, in America, our taxing system is based on self-assessment and voluntary compliance, unquote. So my question to you is, in your official capacity, has the statement been changed in any way, and if so, by what dated constitutionally valid authority was that change made? Then the, the final is, thank you in advance for your prompt response to this, my good faith question regarding this constitutionally valid and material information. This document is executed by the Voluntary Act of my own hand in the 1853 A.D. San Bernardino County in the 1849 A.D. State of California. In other words, I have nothing to do 
with the the, the later uh, 1912 uh, County of San Bernardino and the 1879 State of California. I live over here. I don't reside over there. And then I sign my name, authorized representative of the uppercase spelling of my name, and then I put in uh, parentheses, legal distinction being made on the record, all rights reserved, UCC 1-308 without prejudice. So I made all these, these letters all in one day, and I put them in separate envelopes and a week apart because I didn't want to overload them with stuff. I would send a certified mail return receipt requested to the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Then I made my little fold, my three-ring binder, and I put in uh, page protectors, and I would put a copy of the letter in, and about 15 page protectors, and then I would put in my receipt, uh, my, the white slip for, for the mailing. Then when I get the green card back, I would put that in that same thing. And then if, if I would get a response, it would be behind that reverse so that I could read the question and turn the page over and read the answer. Now, this takes a little time, but it really worked very, very well. Out of the 15 letters, they ignored most of them. And so a lot of people will say, well, that didn't work. I wasted my money on that. No, it didn't. It did work. It's called discharge. I love that word discharge because that means, uh, I mean, first of all, it means uh, default means discharge. So those that I did get a response on was not a response. It was a non-response response. And the, the, the non-response response said, thank you very much for your, um, for your letter and, and your question to the commissioner, and we've turned this over to a legal researcher, and they'll be getting back to you shortly. They never once got back to me shortly. Now, several years went by, and I just stopped firing and paying. And now several years went by, and I've got the three letters. The three letters are, uh, we haven't received uh, your uh, firing for these years. Um, please contact the one below and uh, if you have files and he needs to see uh, your, your record. And then the second one is more strong. You need to get, you need to deal with this. And the third one is this could be criminal. It's a real heavy-handed. In the in the schoolyard, it's called bullying, and that's what our government does all the time. So anyway, uh, I ignored them. I kept them. I keep a file on everything. I have a 76 file cabinet drawers full of stuff. Anyway, the uh, another period of time went by, and I got a letter that said, an appointment has been made for you at the federal building in Los Angeles, California, on this date and time, be there. And so I, I was early. I had my little three-ring binder with all my stuff. I was ready for it. And uh, the time came, and they ushered me into a little room, and there was a long table, and it was going, um, you know, left to right, long way to the door, and I sat across from the door. So there's just me sitting on this side of the table and the door over there. And at the right time, the guy walks in, and he looks up my folder, and he says, well, Mr. Schaefer. I said, yes, that's me. He said, well, it looks like you're ready. I said, you bet I'm ready. He said, well, I'm not. He said, I don't know what the problem was with you, but you did the right thing. You showed up. 
So uh, thank you for coming down. Uh, you're free to leave. Never even looked at my stuff. And I, you know, but I didn't ever hear from him again. And that's how that worked out. Now, I've changed, uh, I help people in other ways now. I tell there's other ways we do. Because I do what I do in um, the area of um, foreclosure defenses, I've read a lot of, of opposition documents. And one of the big opposition is that this guy didn't, didn't even make an offer to pay. You know, here he is trying to get a free house. He never made an offer to pay. And so we have to take all that as instructive. Uh, so we make an offer to pay. And then I, then I found in my research a lot of case law and statutes and uniform commercial code um, information and authority on offers to pay. So we have developed over the years, I've been doing this 36 years now, a really awesome offer to pay document that goes to the Internal Revenue Service. Now, I will say this, I'm bragging, and I admit it, I've got rid of a $158,000 IRS bill for a friend, I guess, about eight years ago. And since then, I've fine-tuned and made the, the document even better. Now, it doesn't work every time, or it didn't until lately, until I added that letter that I told you about that I developed at my daughter's place during the Christmas season. And with that letter and the offer to pay, it so far for the last more than a year, it just goes away. There is no response. Now, one lady in uh, in a nearby town, she she got this letter. I'm going to read it to you. It says, "Dear taxpayer." Now, first of all, in the in the letter, we point out we are not a taxpayer. Don't call me one of those. There's case law that says Congress has not developed any uh, laws towards non-taxpayers. And you thought there was not a thing, no such thing as a non-taxpayer, like I did. But they know that there are taxpayers and there are non-taxpayers. And they uh, presume that you are a taxpayer because of all the filings that you gave them when you started out uh, not of age. Uh, and I'll get to that, but I'm going to read you this letter. They said, dear taxpayer, so see, you don't want to respond to that. I'm not one of those. This is to somebody else. We received one of the following items from you or your authorized third party on October 9, 2015. Now, they, this is a very form letter. This is just off the shelf. They're in a hurry to respond and get this over with. And they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, possibilities, and then other. So here are the eight. Um, the following items from your authorized third party or, or, or yourself on October 9th. Correspondence, well, no offer to pay could be considered correspondence. Telephone inquiry, no. Payment, no. Form, no. Response to our inquiry or notice, well, that offer to pay could be penalty abatement, request, installment, Agreement, none of those apply, except those two I mentioned. And then here's a neat one. It says, we're working on your account. In order to provide a complete response, we need an additional 45 days to let you know what action we are taking on your account. You don't need to take any further action now on this matter. Now, isn't that what we want? Okay, now that was sent out on November 10th. And it was from an October 9 letter. So about 30-some days later, they sent this letter out that said we need 45 days. 
So that was sent out on November 10. Then a few days later, on, on November 12, two days later, they sent out another one. Said the same thing. We received one of the following items from you or your authorized third-party representative. I've listed those things, and now here's the one that's even better. It says, we haven't resolved this matter because we haven't completed all the processing necessary for, for a complete response. However, we'll contact you again within 90 days <laughs> with our reply. Two days ago, was 45 days. Now they need 90 days. You, and here, you don't need to take any further action now on this matter. Of course, then they, they go into how you can make payments if you want to. Well, we don't want to. We made an offer to pay. Okay, then on November 17, there we go, uh, five days after that last one. We received one of the following items from you or your authorized third party on October 15. We go down to that, that um, important paragraph. We haven't resolved this matter because we haven't completed all the processing necessary for the complete response. However, however, we'll contact you again within 90 days with a reply. You don't need to take any further action now on this matter. Now, is that cool or what? That, that's very fresh stuff. This, 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 this happens. Now, a lot of the times, we don't get any response. They just go away. And uh, with, I think they realize they've been set up. Now, the offer to pay... Let me pull that up here. Is a setup, and they should realize it. Now I'm going to read stuff to you tonight. It's okay because I wrote it, and uh, to be very, very accurate, I'm going to read it. And I'm not going to read it all because you know I've got 36 years involved in this, and I'm not going to give it all away. But we're going to offer it for a whole lot less than we've done so in the past. Now, here's, here's the latest offer to pay. We sent this one we sent out uh, just a few days ago. As you know, or reasonably, this is to the commissioner. As you know, or reasonably should know, it is the Coinage Act of April 2, 1792, that is the only American law that specifically defined the American dollar as a weight or measure of a precious metal. In fact, it is so precise it breaks the weight of a grain of wheat into 16 equal parts. A dollar is 371 and 4 sixteenths grains based on the weight of a grain of wheat. A .999 coin of silver. Such American dollars are no longer available at the corner bank. This is why they cannot require you to pay anything to them. They, they, they can tell you that you can pay Federal Reserve notes or checkbook money, but they can't require it. Because the Coinage Act of April 2, 1792 is, is part of the supremacy clause of Article 6, Paragraph 2 of the Constitution, which they've all taken a note of full defense. Next paragraph. For the record, we, this was a couple, living, breathing inhabitants on the land, not the federal corporate straw man legal entity identified as, and then the, the same name in uppercase. Legal distinction being timely made on the record. Close parentheses. Hereby declare that it is now and has always been our lawful intent to always comply with all constitutionally valid laws, statutes, statutes at large, revised statutes, ordinances, codes, titles, manuals, 
Resolutions, executive orders, rules, and regulations. I think we covered them all there. Along with all constitutionally valid court of record judgments, orders, and rulings. That doesn't cover administrative law. Of course, does it? We also sincerely believe that all governmental officers, agents, and employees, including the Internal Revenue Service, in parentheses IRS, are to be held to the same high standard to their constitutionally mandated oath of office. Next page. We, in the people's names, have recently been made aware of a major, major problem. The second major capitalized list. Capitalized. That means you're yelling. That is binding on the United States. That's not the United States of America, by the way. On the United States, it's Department of the Treasury and its Internal Revenue Service that needs a good faith clarification. It is hereby noted that we, and that's their name and not from our case, are at this time not challenging any IRS billing or authority to tax those who are true taxpayers and are not now nor have we ever specifically objected to paying IRS taxes because of any religious or moral reason. You see, we added that paragraph when we started getting letters back that said, you know, there's case law against the people stopping paying because of religious and moral reasons. People would say, well, you're bombing children over in Iraq. I'm not going to support that. I'm not going to pay anymore. And they have case law that says that's not good enough. So here we're, we're saying, hey, we're the good guys. We don't have any problems with any of this stuff. We just need to know something here. So to get this cleared up, we are making a uniform commercial code that's UCC, good faith offer to pay the entire amount due. Now, you see, if they ever take us into court, we can say, hey, we didn't object to anything. We even made an offer to pay. They defaulted. So anyway, and then it says, see attachments, plus any and all constitutionally valid penalties, interest, and other charges that may be doing payable at this time. See, in other words, we just want to clear the whole thing up, and we really do. Subject to a named, a named and state licensed attorney at law of the United States Department of the Interior and its Internal Revenue Service squarely facing and addressing above-mentioned material major subject matter jurisdictional problems just discovered. Now we're going back to the dollar. We, their name have been informed and believe, and upon that information and belief, you're declared that we have been made aware of the fact that in the past we may have been tricked through fraud, deceit, and misrepresentation and lack of full disclosure into autographing, we didn't say signing, that's a bad word, into autographing past documents that may have placed us into a category known as a taxpayer. We hereby now resend all past autographs that may have placed us into such a taxpayer category and respectfully demand that the receiver of this good faith offer to pay to find such document or documents and cancel them as regarding any future correspondence and or billing. You see, when you were a teenager, well, see, I'm 74 now, so when I was a teenager back in the 50s, the late 50s, I got my first job uh, with an employer. It was a chicken rancher. He had one big, huge chicken ranch, and he was just starting ranch number two. He eventually had ranches all over America, over 8 million chickens, had a fleet of semi-trucks that hauled eggs, and another one, he had his own grain mill and made his own feed. He was very, very successful. But way back when he was starting, I had a job with him, and I had to fill out a 
W-4 form before I could get my job. And then I had the W-2 form issued. And then I had to, um, you know, and I didn't really have to. He was ignorant and I was ignorant, according to the law itself. But we we all believed the uh, the tax man or mommy or somebody at school that said you better do this. Okay, we, the name of these people, have also been informed and believe that there is some well-settled American law and jurisprudence that clearly states that Congress has not ever addressed, addressed any constitutional law towards what they identify as non-taxpayers. And if there be any such constitutionally valid law or laws, let me go to the next page here. We now respectfully demand that such law be presented to us timely, within a reasonable 10 days. Now, we say reasonable 10 days because the UCC provides for 72 hours, that's three days. Here we're going almost a, a whole lot longer than that. Furthermore, we, the names of the people, have also been informed and believe, and upon that information and belief here and allege, that all valid original governmental, long revolved federal, corporate, state government officers, agents, and employees function under the constitutionally binding supremacy clause of the original 1787 A.D. Constitution for the United States of America, found in Article 6, Paragraph 2. Now, here's the way that that reads. This Constitution, we're talking the federal Constitution now, the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. And judges, now see we're talking the judge on the chest, and judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of the state to the contrary notwithstanding. So you see, we're using the supreme law called the Coinage Act of April 2, 1792. And by the way, the Coinage Act of 1965 specifically said this does not change the definition of a dollar. Now, I'm about soon to be uh, helping people go into business for themselves. I've been in business for 56 years. Uh, I had four state contractors' licenses. I learned how I can contract without a license. I don't need their license. They have a right to contract. And I've been an unlicensed contractor now for 36 years. They know who I am and where I am. I never give a, a customer reason to complain. And if they have a problem, they have access to the courts. I mean, the, the contracted license board is not not the only way to get redress of grievance. All they can do is pull your license. Well, I don't have a license to pull anymore. So go away. Leave me alone. So I'm going to be, I have a product that I've just developed with the help of two chemists that makes my roof coating have an R6 insulation value per coat. And we can make it into house paint, so we can paint the inside wall of the house with R12 insulation and the outside with R12 insulation. And the ingredient makes the product be a 40-year product instead of a 7-year product and fireproof. Now, we're not supposed to use the word fireproof, but... A house fire burns up between 12 and 1,800 degrees, according to my fire captain nephew. A forest fire burns from 15 to 2,000 degrees. Propane gas, which you can buy at any hardware store, and a little torch 
develops about 2,400 degrees. We, we can't make anything burn when we put this on it, and then we hit it with 2,400 degrees. So we're going to map pro-gas, which goes up to about 3,600 degrees. We cannot make it burn. So then we go up to map gas, which is 5,301 degrees. We cannot make it burn. We go up to 6,000 degrees with a map gas um, with a um, turbo torch off of a map pro cylinder, go to 6,000 degrees, and it will not burn. So we can't say it's fireproof, but you can determine that yourself. And, you know, we just had a, a fire in California, in Lake County, that destroyed over 2,000 homes and three towns gone. And we're going to go up there and, and, and probably sell a lot of products. Plus, I'm going to do a seminar on uh, how to do uh, mobile home roads. I've done over 7,000 mobile home roads. I have a product and a process that will... I've got roofs that will last 30 years without this new ingredient ribbon. And it has. Many, many of the 7,000 have lasted more than 30 years. And my competitors' roofs will last a year or two. And that's why I could keep 28 people busy year-round without a rain in sight. People were standing in line. I would have 110 jobs sold, but I couldn't start until I finished the 20-some that were already in the process. Anyway... Uh, it's that dollar issue. The reason I'm bringing this up is this dollar issue is how you can get around the contract clause, because the law says you can contract in California up to $800 without a license. So we don't charge dollars, do we? Not at all. And I've had this. I've had the contract with license board knocking on my door, and after I ran that argument, by the guy left, and never came back. And that was 25 years ago, and I still contract for for big money, but not for dollars. I just used this product on two big mobile homes in Palm Springs. One was a double wide, and one was a triple wide with a two-car garage. And uh, <clears throat> nobody bothered me for it because, you know, I'll, I'll say it out loud. I'm the best there is in mobile home booking, and I can teach other people how to do that right out of the gate. They don't have to learn like I did the hard way, hard way and go back and go back until you get it right. So going on here, we, the people's name, have also been informed and believed, and upon that information and belief, here and declare that we have been made aware of the sole effect original Federal Claims Act of April 2, 1792, which appears to be the only constitutionally valid law that ever precisely defined, and to this day, defines the American dollar. It also appears that it is the American dollar is the only thing that the United States Department of the Treasury and its Internal Revenue Service officers, agents, and employees may require, then in parentheses, keyword, as a tender of any offer to pay for any amount due and payable at any time or place. Now, I'm not going to read any more. That's page three. This whole thing with all the case law involved in it goes up to page 27. And I'll tell you how you can get a hold of this before we get through. Now, that works very well, thank you, for a long time. But once in a while, we, they would still hammer on people. So I decided to go into my archives and dig up the uh, that big document that I did at my daughter's house. And I'm going to read you some of that. Um, now, it is, let me hold on here. The 
with all the case law involved, it's 39 pages long. This is the one that people paid me $1,200 for as a donation many years ago, just helping me because I had bills to pay and, you know, I haven't had a life really for 36 years. But I do enjoy doing what I do, and I enjoy beating corruption. You know, just going back to 36 years ago, uh, when I ran across, I was happy using my four-state contractor's licenses and running my retail store with branches in five towns and and, uh, keeping 28 people busy year in and year out. I had 35 vehicles uh, on, on the road. Uh, 15 in my, no, I had 35 antique vehicles, and then I had 15 vehicles on the road in the business. And then because of a little corruption, more than a little, by the way, I laid everybody off. I closed down my stores, I, and people thought, well, I, he took a little government corruption a little too seriously. Yeah, I did. I went and lived in an 8 by 12 shed for three years, started collecting books. I have 9,000 law books right now, and I started getting really good in court and people would come to me and ask for their help and to start with I would have I would trade them um, one hour for two hours in other words I was at the time trying to restore my my hotel I have Hotel California on the corner of Main Street and Route 66 in downtown San Rodino with one of my investments I was a 50% owner and I was turning out all the ceilings and and, uh, you know, cleaning the place up, getting ready to restore it. So they would work for two hours for my one hour. That was just a barter thing. And uh, then I just got more busy after they tore down my hotel. So now here is the presentment. It's called the UCC 3-301 presentment. This is the one I developed after reading all those books. Uh, It says, I am uh, to the commissioner. I am making this lawful. UCC 3-305 presentment to you personally in your individual capacity for the sole purpose of presenting you with lawful public and constitutional duty to read, know, and understand the easy-to-understand material information provided herein. I respectfully demand that after you read, know, and understand the information presented herein, you will lawfully respond according to well-established law. The understanding herein alleges that a false public record created due to past fraud, deceit, and misrepresentation as herein alleged and clearly identifies substantially places you, a governmental officer, agent, or employee on due process notice to thoroughly investigate these allegations. The undersigned herein alleges that you know or reasonably should know that such due process notice materially defeats these false public records as well as governmental laws of presumption. See, they presume that you're, you're a, a statutory or a juristic person because of your birth certificate and your driver license and your parents' marriage license and all of the above. Just, just going to public school pulls pulled you into the system. Um, Proceed to this information with great care as I now have evidence that you have received this communication and that you now personally have a public duty and responsibility under the Uniform Commercial Code laws of presentment to respond accordingly and timely. You should also be advised that I can and will be able to track you and your supervisors personally through court discovery should it become necessary in the future. I say supervisors because they'll be turning this over to somebody else. 
And if I continue to be damaged by your actions or inaction, then we go into the sincerely intent of the undersigned to obey all laws. Some of this is repetitious in that that other thing. But then it gets to um, what what I learned in those books. And And then I also made that part of that original letter that we talked about where we asked them to respond and then they didn't respond. Okay. Um, here we go. I, the undersigned, do hereby further declare and state that I have just now been informed and believe and sincerely believe that before I was of legal age, I justifiably relied on what I now sincerely believe to have been fraudulent misinformation presented to me by paid professionals and therewith, without full disclosure by them regarding the full extent of my state and federal legal status made the following three erroneous actions. In other words, I'm admitting that I did all this stuff. Because they'll pull you in the court and say, well, did you, did, you, uh, sign your, did you sign up for a Social Security? Did you get a driver's license? Did you? So we admit it. Not a problem. I signed a request with the Social Security Administration and thereafter received a federal Social Security number which on its face had the words not to be a Yes, for identification. They don't say that anymore, but they did way back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I have now learned that contrary to what I was told at the time, I was not required by law to obtain said number in order to obtain my first job. That was A. Now B, I then erroneously signed an original W-4 form, which was presented to me by my original employer with the erroneous information that I was required by law to sign it in order for me to obtain my first job. And C, I therefore erroneously signed my first and subsequent tax form. Can I use that against you? You signed all this stuff over the years. That shows you're a taxpayer. But they don't talk about how you got fraudulently pulled into all this. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Title 36 is the Internal Revenue Service. And it's basically for those who have a governmentally created privilege Just like if I had a McDonald's hamburger franchise, I would have to pay McDonald's for that privilege. If I started out making Bob Schaefer hamburgers, it would go real slow, but I wouldn't have to. It would be all mine. But see, the government says you have a privilege. And that's what they call in California the state tax is a franchise tax form. So where's my franchise? I don't see that. We want that put in the records there. Okay. I, the undersigned, also hereby now claim an exemption and exclusion from gross income of all remuneration and compensation for labor earned in any of the 50 original union states from the Internal Revenue Code, Title 26, the United States Code, Subtitle 8, Graduated Income Tax, and Internal Revenue Code, Title 26, United States Code, Subtitle C, Employment Taxes for the Following Reasons. I do not live or work abroad and was not born in nor now or have I ever lived in, resided in, been a backup withholding agent in or for, have a residence in, residence is a a commercial term, by the way, worked in nor had any income from any source within a territory, possession, or enclave of the United States. Now, that's not the United States of America, is it? I have never imported or exported any tobacco, narcotics, spirits, rum, oil products, 
firearms, explosives, machine guns, fully automatic guns, or gambling or entertainment machines into or out of the territorial jurisdiction of the United States, including but not limited to the District of Columbia, Guam, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, the Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, the Philippine Islands, and the Indian Reservations, the federal corporate states, that's uppercase, federal corporate regions, now we're getting into regionalism, federal corporate counties. See, this covers everything. This is so detailed. Federal corporate cities or any municipal body politics or any other federal territory possession, enclave, or instrumentality within or without the United States. Again, not of America. This is the United States Incorporated, which is the District of Columbia, for Pete's sake. Which entity has its origin and jurisdiction created under the primary authority of Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17, and Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2 of the Constitution for the United States of America. That's the original one. Further, I declare I've never received any taxable income or profit or compensation from any source with any such territory, possession, enclave, or instrumentality under the sovereignty and jurisdiction of the United States Incorporated. You see, people who have all these things need to pay that tax. That's their franchise. That's their, they have a governmentally created, regulatable, and taxable privilege, and I think they ought to pay it. And I'm not going to help anybody not pay what they really owe. Uh, but I think a lot of us have been tricked into thinking that we owed it. And they're not going to argue with you, by the way. Nobody's going to sit down and say, no, Mrs. Schaefer, uh, did you do this? Did you do that? Or you didn't? Well, then you're not required to pay. Have a nice day. Thank you for coming in. Nobody is going to do that. They want you to pay over there. I have learned that Title 18, Title 26, Title 27, and Title 31 of the United States Code is federal legislative applicable only to the United States and its territory. Again, the United States Incorporated and its territory which is Guam, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, America, Samoa, the Virgin Islands, uh, the Philippines, and all that stuff. Therefore, I demand to be considered as a non-taxpayer outside the jurisdiction of the United States Incorporated and not subject to any of its legislation, such as the United States Code, Title 18, 26, 27, 31, created by such authority, and I am not subject to the jurisdiction of any employees officers or agents driving their authority thereof. Now, this is just page three, and I'm not going to give you the rest of it. But if you if you want to donate for it, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to make it available to people that, that really need it and want it uh, for a whole lot less than what we charged in the past. Uh, we, we normally get uh, a $500 donation for the offer to pay and there was a 1200 donation for the backup letter um so what i'm going to offer tad's members is both of these documents for 800 bucks and there that's like about 60 pages and i can't guarantee anything i can guarantee that i will tell you the truth that since you put the two together they have gone away every single time and that's quite a few times by the way because you basically, they see that they're being set up. There's no use pursuing you. It's just going to cost them a lot of money and a lot of grief, and they're not going to go anywhere with it because you covered all the bases. 
you never were supposed to be paying that tax to begin with. And in fact, if if, if they do want to come after us, we'll do a compulsory cross complaint, and we'll go after all those back taxes that 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 you paid in that you shouldn't have. And that would be a different fee. But you know, we have a lot of experience doing this. So that's my story for now. And if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer. All right, thank you, Bob. That was quite a um, a lecture there. If you guys have any questions for Bob, hit star 8 on your phone. And that'll come up in our queue. Just hit star 8. <clears throat> so you can talk to Bob. Questions, comments, stories, whatever you want. Star 8. Okay, Arizona, go ahead. Arizona. Bob, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, whoever yeah. whoever, does, whoever no. does come on, please speak slowly and very distinctly because I'm almost deaf. <laughs> Hi, Chad. Hi, Bob. This is Jim in Arizona. Um, uh, I, I thought I'd uh, give a short testimonial. I've known Bob now for several years, and uh, the, the things that Bob uh, shares with uh with everyone who's listening tonight is uh is very very effective and uh i just want to say bob i'm I'm very glad that i know you and uh, i have uh used some of bob's documents and they are very effective and uh we're using a a a version of his offer to pay in a case that i've got right now at the at the uh ninth circuit court of appeals on in relation to a uh attempted unlawful foreclosure, and uh, right now it seems to be uh, holding up very well. It's The case has been there now uh, re- without really any activity in a year and a half, and I quite frankly believe that they just don't know what to do with it. So it'll be interesting how everything eventually, uh, you know, they have to make a decision at some point in time, and uh, I'm, I'm anxious to find out, you know, what our next move is. But uh, Bob, I just want to publicly say thank you, or privately, um, for all the all the effort and research you've done on this subject, and uh, you, you've been a blessing to a lot of people. So thank you, Bob. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, anybody else? Hit star eight on your phone. You raise your hand. All right, well, Bob, it doesn't look like that anybody has any questions for you tonight. Well, that's okay, too. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of my own questions, and I can't. <laughs> he just covered it so well, right? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I'll tell you, it's a big area. There are people... I've gone to a lot of seminars in the 36 years. There was one man that uh, he could quote the Internal Revenue Code, book, chapter, and verse. You'd say, you, you, you say this, you get a book and you look it up and ask him to quote it, and he would. And yet he filed. <laughs> he kept filing his page. And I don't know why not, because he has such such good good information. But I've gleaned a lot of information, and what I've 
I, I believe in doing now because of my age and because I have so many people that I'm helping. Um, and because I don't charge a whole lot, uh, I try to make everything real, real simple and just go for the jugular, so to speak, and just get it over with. And so rather than go into all the mound of paperwork and arguments that people have developed over the years, I have found that the offer to pay, which is something I developed, I never read a book on the offer to pay, I never went to a seminar on the offer to pay, I'm, I'm crowing again, but that's, that's okay, I developed that. And the offer to pay kills Bank, excuse me, um, bankruptcy judgments, superior court judgments. I just helped a man kill a $1.8 million bankruptcy judgment. And the same guy, a, a $180,000 superior court judgment. We made the offers to pay. He did. He made the offer to pay, and they defaulted. And all the case law that we presented with the offer to pay, so they have notice of what they're their actions or inactions are going to happen, says that a default means discharge. And that's when I when we started tonight, I said there was a $158,000 IRS judgment that we discharged with the offer to pay. So rather than go into all the diatribe about how the IRS is, is, is wrong and all that stuff, um, the, the things that I mentioned earlier about the setup, that's still a good thing to do. But you might just be able to get rid of the whole thing with the offer to pay with this this long letter that says all the things that you do and don't do. That are those are the things that are taxable and you don't do those. So leave me alone. And you can't presume I do those anymore. Now that I have brought it in there we tell them we want these letters to be put in your individual master file. The IMF. Put it in the individual master file. I want it there. I want people to call on it. If I'm ever messed with, I want to hold your feet to that fire. Because I have killed all those autographs that I made erroneously, especially those first ones when I was underage. Okay. All right. Well... Uh, if we don't have any more questions for Bob, then we'll go ahead and wrap up the call for the evening, which is okay with me. Like I said, I'm not feeling well. You get well. Hold it. We've got somebody from Oregon that wants to talk to you, Bob. Okay. Oregon. Go ahead. Hi, Bob. Hi, Tad. This is Genevieve. Hey, Genevieve. We can barely hear you, by the way. Okay, can you hear me better? Much better. All right. Hello, Bob. Hello. Hi. I I don't really have a question regarding your tonight's topic, but I have a, t- a question regarding land patents. Sure. Would you be open to hearing that? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, can I ask the question about land patents? Yes, yes sure can. Okay, great. Thanks. I looked on. I've got a photocopy of the county record of my land and it's got a bunch of numbers on it and stuff and I'm wondering maybe I if I already have the proper township and uh, range section numbers already 
So if I read them to you, can you tell me, would this be enough to ask the uh, BLM for for uh, my uh, copy of the original land patent? You don't need to read them to me. That's all they need is the township range, the section number, and if you can give them the quarter, you know, like the uh, northwest quarter or the southeast quarter, that will that will hone it down into uh, maybe one or two at the most land patents. Sometimes a land patent will cover many sections. Railroad grants covered hundreds of sections, but then there's other sections that might have two or three or four land patents in that section. So instead of buying all four of them, you can tell them, you can hone it down to um, more, be more specific. If you can't do that, you just know the section number, just get all the land patents. They're cheap. You know, you, you might spend uh, 5 to $15 to get them all. And, oh, okay. and that's, that's including cer- uh, certification and they're mailing them to you. Wow. Now, now let me tell you why people need to get their land patent. Because on that land patent, there either is or is not a reservation of rights. Now, there's an old maxim of law that says what, uh, if it didn't happen in writing, it didn't happen. So if, if on that land patent there's no reservation of rights, that means there is no reservation of rights to anybody, not federal, state, city, county, township, or village, nobody. That sovereign allodial title that was part of the public domain in your state went directly to that original homesteader and his heirs or assigns, and you're an assign forever because forever is a long time, and that includes today. So you have the sovereign allodial title that that, that landowner, that original guy got, and that will show up as, as a uh, no reservation of rights. Now, there might be a res- reservation of rights for the federal government only to come back in and put in ditches and canals for some kind of a flood control. And they have the right to do that forever. Now, if that's not on your land patent, and on the plat map, it'll say D slash C. So you can, if you're looking at the plat map, you can see right away that they, they reserve the right to come in and put in ditches and canals. Yeah. The, newer, the newer land patents reserve rights for coal and oil and gas and water, but water for uh, agriculture, mining, and industry, not for domestic use. So if they want to come and put a meter on your well, like they're doing all over America, you can fight it. Say, go away, leave me alone. I own to the center of the earth and to the center of the sky. And I own everything there. It's mine. And you can you can sue them. Now, if they sue you, you do a, a, an answer and compulsory cross-complaint. But before you do that, you remove it into the United States District Court from the state court where the judges are pretty much bought and paid for. So you want to get out of that jurisdiction into U.S. District Court. And when you file a notice of motion, notice of removal and you serve everybody, it is removed whether they like it or not. They are in a different court system. Now they can get they can file a motion to remand for different reasons, but your reason to keep it there is this is a federal question of great public interest. I'm taking this to the United States Supreme Court if I need to. And because on the land patent exhibit A, there's no reservation of rights to the state. Now, the state is a legislative, executive, and judicial department or branch. So there's no reservation of rights for the judiciary here in this state. So the state has no jurisdiction. They should not have taken me into the state court on land patent 
proven property. And by the way, all private land is pr- protected forever by a land patent, either state or federal. So the land patent is an awesome document. But there's a lot of people preaching erroneous stuff on land patents, and they make a good buck about it, I guess. But uh, I listen in on other stuff, and I, I cringe when I hear what they're preaching. But I'm not going to embarrass them, assert their audience. I'm not going to say you're wrong because, but I have nobody's ever gone to jail for using my material, state or federal, on any of my any of my documents, office to pay, land patent documents, traffic, any of that stuff. That's quite a record. Any more questions? Yes. So, uh, just a quick question back to my very first one. I have number a number for Township South, Range West, section number 27, one quarter A and 116D. Well, that will be part of that town, that uh, section, by the way. And you know, another thing you also need to know is the 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 whole uh, meridian, like where I work, comes off of the basin meridian of San Bernardino. That's off of Mount San Bernardino. Then there's there's um, one up north. Uh, I think it's Mount Diablo, and then there's one there's three of them in California. So you need they will also need that. Okay, so I have to figure that out too. Okay. Well, it'll um, say that wherever you've got that information, it will say that. Okay. And a, a, a title company will give you that information, or if you have to, a local surveyor. Or if you have a Thomas Brothers Street Atlas for that area, it will tell you. All right. Great. So once I've got my land patent in hand, and I want to get off the tax rolls for the county, I I send a letter and a copy of the land patent to them? Well, you know, I have to be honest and tell you, I've been so busy doing other things, and my taxes on my two pieces of land are so low, I've had to focus on helping other people and not take stuff off the tax rolls. I think I know how, and what I would suggest is that you do that, contact the, the, the assessor and the tax collector, and they might be the same person, and they are truly a person, they're a statutory and juristic person, whether they may have spelled in uppercase letters. Yeah, I would ask them for, uh, that you, to tell them that you believe that your, your land was erroneously placed on the tax rolls to some uh, false misleading information years ago, and you need to know the original law that allowed that to happen. What law was quoted to some landowner 60, 80 years ago that caused them to think they owed to pay that tax? Now then, you're going to find out that that is an administrative law that does not have an enabling clause in it at all, which means it's not a constitutionally valid law, and that's something you can use in a quiet title action where you quiet their title against your title. Now, I haven't perfected that, but that's the way I would go to start with in that area. In the meantime, you can just make an offer to pay property tax. See, we have offer to pay property tax. We have offer to pay uh, IRS, offer to pay state income tax, offer to pay credit cards, offer to pay anything that, that the money that you got a benefit from was created from your autograph. See, like mortgages are... 
the money that you get from your mortgage company, you gave them. They didn't tell you that. Yeah. But that money, that money did not exist in the universe, and so you put a signature on their promissory note document, and that promissory note document became worth the face value. Let's say you bought five hundred thousand dollars. Ten minutes ago, it was worth ten cents. Now it's worth five hundred thousand dollars. Literally, everybody recognizes that. It's under the promissory note doctrine from the 1930s. I think it was 1933. The promissory note act where they create, and they call it that, new money. It's brand new money. And the IRS, I mean, the Federal Reserve's book called Modern Money Mechanics calls it new money. 95% of the new money is created at the corner bank. So you created the money that they lent you. You were the original creditor, by the way. <laughs> and, and under... under um, GAAP, that's G-A-A-P, or Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, it doesn't comply with GAAP. So they have an asset with no liability. That's why when you look at some papers from a bank, some financial institution, they say they have, you know, $37 billion in assets. It was all created with some people's signatures in their in their township. They're not, they have no skin in the game. Now then, a judge might say in a mortgage foreclosure, are you trying to get a free house? And the answer to that is, well, it looks like somebody's going to get a free house, and why should it be them? I financed my own loan. They never told me that. I made them famous for 18 years. Then I got sick, and now they want to come and get my brick and mortar? And, now, and that's a crime because they violated FAS 140, which says that that promissory note had to be destroyed when they made it into a security and traded all over the world forever. And they separated that from my deed of trust. I promise my deed of trust, or if you're east of the Mississippi, my mortgage, they separated it, killing, killing the, the foreclosure value of those documents. They no longer became security for that promissory note that was securitized. And now it's a crime for them to sell my house using that security device. You see, here's another thing people don't realize. When you buy your house, somebody issues a grant deed into your name. They were the assign of the of the original benefits of that original asset. They assigned them to you. Now you're the, the beneficiary of the sovereign allodial land ownership rights, title, interest, estate, use, and control that the federal government has. But they didn't tell you that when you signed your deed of trust to the lending company, you made them the assign. You waived all those rights and he gave them to them. But then when they securitized that promissory note and separated it or bifurcated it from, from that deed of trust, they assigned it back to you. And they didn't even know that they had it or that they assigned it back to you. But that's just the real world. Uh. By operation of law, they abandoned the land patent, when they were so greedy that they invested that promissory note on the stock exchange. Now then, here you are with a loan of your own money, and you still have, now you have the, the sovereign allodial title, too, through that land patent. That's why people need to get their land patent. Everybody needs it. That's Exhibit A. It's all right there. When when you make an if I were to make an offer to pay 
to the county tax assessor, would I be offering um, a, a bond, a settlement bond of some sort? No, no. You see, you don't have to have one red cent to make an offer to pay. You have to have money to to pay it. But see, we make an offer to pay subject to a very reasonable thing, and that is, we need to know what they're requiring. You know, we know that they will accept Federal Reserve notes and checkbook money, but we're not asking what you will accept. We're asking what are you requiring, number one. Number two, by what authority can you require that? Just in case they say we require Federal Reserve notes, I need to know the authority for that. There is none. And then the third one, just so in case they say, well, then pay in silver dollars, the third one is then do you require everybody else to pay in that, or are you discriminating against me for my knowledge? They're really damned if they do and damned if they don't. We put them in a box they cannot get out of. It is truly a setup. But see, most people just sit on their hands. They don't know what they're doing. You know, ignorance is is not stupidity. It's just not knowing what to do next. And a lot of people just don't know what to do next. And most people would just rather have another beer and watch the game and not get involved in all this quest for knowledge. Right. Until until they get their back up against the wall, and then they where where's that shaper guy? You know, the guy who used to call it coop. Where is he now? I need him. <laughs> if uh, let's say let's say you did say, well, you're discriminating against me for my knowledge. That's what they are. They That's what they're doing. If if they, by the way, if they say pay in silver coins, because they could say that because that's what the law requires. It says the money of account of the state of California or in other states, the money of account of the United States and all court proceedings shall be had and held in the form of a dollar, dime, cent, and mill. So if they say, well, pursuant to that authority, we require you to pay your taxes in uh, in silver. Well, that, they're 24 to 1 now. But you see, so to get around that one, we, we have to say, uh, do you require everybody to pay in that, or are you discriminating against me for my knowledge? See, they can't require you to pay something they they can't require everybody to pay, and they cannot require everybody to pay in silver. It's not enough. Well, they can't even require us to pay in silver because there really aren't any lawful dollars anymore. And exactly, exactly, right. exactly. They're not available at the corner bank. So that's why the offer to pay is so important because you're setting them up for a default. And when they default, that means that tax is discharged. See, they're supposed to accept your offer or reject it with a counter offer that is valid according to the Uniform Commercial Code. See, I know I know that the government people are listening to me. That's okay. I'm showing you people how you're going to fail and how you better leave these people alone because it's going to only come back to bite you because we know how to do a compulsory cross-complaint. Well, what if I made an offer to pay and then they said, oh, okay, great, pay us. Then I would Wait, say, wait, wait, that, that's not an answer. Pay us with what? That's the question. Oh. See, they, have to tell you what, they have to tell you what you, what they require of you. The only thing they can require of you is silver or gold coins. 
And like you just said, they're no longer available, so they cannot require you to do an impossibility. Now, I had, I had one judge come back, and he said, the court orders that the defendant may pay in Federal Reserve notes. Now, that's not a requirement, is it? May is permissive. Right. That was, that was a non-response response. Now they don't even respond, and that means discharge. We just, I just did a document today that will be filed tomorrow in, uh, the, that will give due process notice that, that there's been a default and that we're accepting the discharge. Now that's in the appealable record. If they keep messing with these people, then we can go up on appeal and have the, the higher appellate court poke them in the chest and say, look, these guys made an offer to pay. You defaulted pursuant to this law. It's discharge. Why are you still messing with them? Mm. I have success in the appellate court. Not all. You don't have success in the lower courts. People who say they never lost a case are liars. But you go up on appeal. I've been all the way to the United States Supreme Court. When when you do your filings. Do you do it exactly according to their requirements? So I that- sure do. I'm, I'm in their system. We're going to play their game. Huh. There's plenty of room to win using their rules and laws against them. They're the ones that have are bound by those. For instance, I, I help people with criminal cases. The district attorneys never, never, never go by the rules of courts that specify the format. So this is not a, a one final judgment, uh, uh, excuse me, a, a final charging document. All the, most, most of them prosecute a case with a witness statement. That's a notice to appear filed or, or written out of the, on the street. It doesn't have the entire law produced. It fails to come up with the essential element rule. It doesn't have the... the uh, uh, Enabling clause written on it. It has your name in all uppercase letters. They're prosecuting somebody else. This isn't me. This is a case of mistaken identity. Then if the DA does do an eight and a half by 11 paper, it's usually not numbered one, line numbered one to 28. The court is not listed on line number eight. The prosecutor and his, his bar number and facts and cell and all that's not started on line number one. It's not Piker or 12-point pitch. It's not space and a half or double space. The page isn't numbered. There's all kinds of things that are wrong. And at the end of that rule, the court clerk can't accept anything except what's above, except for good cause shown. And they don't have any good cause shown for just filing this little thing. And then they they want to be called your honor. Yeah, Genevieve. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yes, I could keep That's going. True. You know that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm I'm really wanting to. You're pooped. Okay. Yeah, okay. I'm kind of sick. I don't need to. Oh, I'm sorry. To get hear off. That. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate your help. You're welcome. By the way, Chad, uh, since we have just a little extra time, you don't have to be involved in this, but I think some people want an upgrade on on the mass shooting that happened in my neighborhood. And oh, part- yeah. Well, let's, why don't we go ahead and go over that now? Okay. All right. Good night.
I'll, I'll be listening. Good night. Yeah. Thank you, Drew. Okay, I have I have 430-foot frontage on Orange Show Road. The word Orange Show Road was mentioned all the time because it happened about uh, 500 feet from the intersection of Orange Show Road and Waterman. So if you step out my center gate, I've got three gates, and you look, you'd be looking north. If you raise your right arm, or excuse me, your left arm, you'd be pointing at Waterman Avenue down Orange Show Road. To the left from Waterman Avenue, is about five or 600 feet is where it happened. Now, because they have just built one of those super warehouses that people are saying our future or concentration camp, this place has 1.1 million square feet. That was between me and the shootout room and, and my land. And so that building was, I don't know if it took any, any um, bullets, but it very likely did because they sprayed the inside of that room closest to my land. And uh, what went out the window probably struck that big, huge warehouse. Now that if you raise your right hand, you'd be pointing to the east. That's where the shootout was, where they shot the people up. Um, the um, the terrorists uh, unloaded, I believe, with 86 rounds, and the SWAT team um, got them back with about 380 rounds. Now, I know a guy who knows a guy who's one of the one of the uh, SWAT team members, and he says, yeah, we got shot at. And, uh, but they, they ended it. The San Bernardino Police SWAT Department is very competent. Let me just make this statement. If you're a terrorist in San Bernardino, you will die. That's just yeah. the way it's going to go. That's the way it's going to go. Now, there was an interesting comment made on, on, in Florida. They shot a guy 380 sometimes. And, of course, the hand-wringing liberals went in to the, the uh, UCL, ACLU and said, well, why did you have to shoot the guy 386 times? And the answer, I thought, was perfect. The answer was, that's all the ammo we had. Yeah. <clears throat> you see, when you shoot and kill, when, you, when, when the enemy shoots and kills your own, um, there's no more rules in effect anymore. Not not for a while. So anyway, um, things are back to normal now. That place that uh, all the shooting was now has a brand new chain link fence around it, and it's empty. They don't. There's nothing happening there. Oh no. It's, And tear it down or just clean it up or what they're going to do, but it's empty. And the place where the shootout was, they repaved where the where the car was sitting. I don't know if there was too many bullet holes in the ground or blood on the pavement or what, but that area is is repaved. But you know, people, that's getting pretty close to home. You know, it's not Paris now. Yeah. Downtown San Bernardino. Well. Okay. Our president is the one that invited these people in. I'm sorry? It was our president that invited these people in. Yeah. And by the way, there's all these, you know, we've heard uh, a year ago that uh, these people just need jobs. You know, we've got to get them jobs. This guy had a a very well-paying job for five years. So don't tell me that if you give them a job, they're not going to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. 
All right, Bob. Well, thank you very much for the call tonight. We appreciate it. And uh, well, you're doing well. Yeah, thank you. And everybody else, thank you. And we'll uh, talk with you again soon. Good night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.